Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining today's call. I'm Jim Doyle with Business Forward, and I'll be moderating our conversation today. Currently, all lines are in listen-only mode. We're pleased to welcome Kristen Dizek, Vice President of Industry, Labor, and Economics for the Center for Automotive Research. She's here to discuss how steel and aluminum tariffs are affecting America's manufacturers and the broader economy. She's also here to talk about the potential impact of imposing tariffs on the automotive industry. This will be an interactive briefing, so after her presentation, we'll have time for questions. For those of you who are new to our programming, Business Forward organizes local roundtables, Washington fly-ins, conference calls, webinars, and media trainings for more than 100,000 business leaders across the United States. At these briefings, entrepreneurs, investors, small business owners, and executives get the chance to brief policymakers on issues affecting their companies and how Washington can better work with business to accelerate our economy. More than 600 uh, members of Congress, governors, mayors, and senior administration officials participate in our programming, and this is all thanks to the support of more than 60 of America's largest and most respected companies. Before we get started, I need to cover a few housekeeping items. Uh, as I mentioned, there'll be time for questions and comments. You can participate in two ways. You can press one at any time to be entered into the queue to ask your question live, or you can email it to info at businessfwd.org. That's info at businessfwd.org, and I'll read it aloud. Uh, you know, when you uh, submit a question, please uh, be sure to uh, uh, share your name, your business, and the city uh, you're, in which you're uh, 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 from. And uh, if you ask a question live, uh, please introduce yourself, your business, and your location as well. We'll get to as many questions as we can. Uh, second, this call is on the record, and there may be reporters present. So let's get started. Uh, Kristen, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, please tell us about your, uh, your research. Sure. Um, thank you for having me, uh, Jim. It's very nice to join this group. Um, and hello to all my friends out there. Um, so the Center for Automotive Research, we're a nonprofit uh, think tank, and we look at you know, the impact of various policies and changes, um, technology changes, on the auto industry. Um, we have looked at steel and aluminum uh, 232 tariffs and some of the retaliation from that. Uh, we've looked at the potential for 232 uh, tariffs to be placed on imported vehicles and parts. Um, and I will also cover a little bit about where the current status of NAFTA negotiations are. So with regard to steel and aluminum, you know, those tariffs have been on now for a few months. Um, the biggest impact for the auto industry has been uh, while most automotive automakers were sourcing their steel and aluminum domestically, um, from the United States, uh, some were some of the part suppliers are sourcing from other NAFTA partners. Uh, Canada is our number one source of steel imports. 18% uh, of the steel used in the United States was from Canada in 2017. Mexico is number three with 9% of the imports of steel. And Canada is our number one source of aluminum imports. 41% of all U.S. imports of aluminum were coming from Canada. Um, you know, the real issue underlying the 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum is that there is global overcapacity, largely driven by a run-up in capacity building in China. Uh, so vast overcapacity in the global market, depressing the prices, and yes, in fact, impacting the domestic industry here in the United States. There are certainly, though, very many more jobs tied to the steel using and aluminum using industries than there are in the production industries. Under protection, uh, the steel and aluminum industries will be able to 
bring back some capacity and bring back some workers and they've been able to raise their prices a little bit as well which does affect the auto industry um, but expanding the use of the capacity we have or even expanding capacity once the tariffs are gone just contributes to a greater overcapacity problem in the global market for these metals so we haven't really gone after the root cause <laughs> and the problem um, that led us to having depressed prices globally um, there are parts suppliers, however, that use very specific um, grades and types of steel and aluminum that are not produced domestically. There's a process by which they can um, get an exemption from the Commerce Department, and those are going quite slowly. There are thousands and thousands of applications for exemption. Um, in terms of vehicle prices, most of the automakers have been able to either adjust the content of the vehicles or you know um, the packaging of how they put together the vehicle for the consumer price and it's most of what we're seeing is a hundred to five hundred dollars per vehicle uh, price impact from the steel and aluminum tariffs the bigger impact may be however that just about um, well Canada Mexico um, the EU have all retaliated um, in response to these tariffs and the retaliation is hitting back in in kind in steel and aluminum um, also in agricultural products and in some other inputs into the automotive production process so the retaliation is starting to take effect now too so while the steel and aluminum uh, is a big deal uh, altogether steel and aluminum imports to the US amount to about 46 billion dollars uh, looking at the potential for 232 tariffs on imported cars and parts that's 353 billion dollars of imports to the US so you know a factor of six or seven um, more <laughs> than the steel and aluminum so this impact would be considerably larger we did um, put out a study on the potential impacts of uh, 232 tariffs on imported cars and parts um, I think one thing that's really important to consider is in case of steel the steel and, and aluminum the steel and aluminum domestic steel and aluminum industries were looking for some protection there was some big problems as I mentioned with the overcapacity in the global market there are no um, companies that are asking for the tariff protection for automotive parts or vehicles um, the hearing that was held just a few weeks ago nearly every uh, uh, group and organization that testified was universally opposed to the tariffs being imposed um, and even the United Auto Workers which is somewhat friendly to there being some protection for parts and vehicles um, even their comments were more muted and focused on particular types of parts that might be um, able to be reshored and you know their members are very tied to production of uh, parts and components and vehicles that are traded within the NAFTA region uh, so even they were not all gung-ho and in favor of 232 tariffs um, so I think that there are a couple of things to think about um, one is there is no 100% US built vehicle um, the there's various ways of looking at the content in vehicles um, and most of them come up with an average US content of the vehicles built in the United States between 55 and 65 percent um, so that remaining parts content would be potentially um, subject to tariff 
and that would raise the average price of a vehicle sold in the United States by $4,400. Um, you know, it would go up less for those sold in the U.S. and manufactured in the U.S., about $2,700, and more for a vehicle that's a pure import from another country. Um, and those could go up as, as much as $6,800 uh, per vehicle on, in terms of tariffs on, on an imported vehicle based on their content and, and such. So why are they considering this uh, is to, you know, there's, there's a, the underlying law, the 232, is about national security. Um, and the administration's goals are really to support U.S. national security and strengthen uh, the manufacturing industries here. Um, our analysis show that the tariffs, and particularly those on parts, produce net negative results for the U.S. economy. Um, we think there are other policy options, and we'd be happy to discuss those in the Q&A a bit. But let's uh, talk a little bit more about um, these uh, overall impacts. Uh, on the positive side, uh, there could be um, an increase in motor vehicle manufacturing output um, by about 18%, $62.4 billion. We might also see an increase in motor vehicle manufacturing employment by about 432,000 employees. This is in the automaker side alone. However, as I mentioned, the price impacts would be considerable for consumers. The overall light vehicle sales volume could drop by 2 million units, or down about 12%, taking us to a 14.8 million unit market. Um, U.S. vehicle light vehicle exports would decline about 18% because the prices had gone up. Uh, we would see our motor vehicle parts output drop about $15.8 billion. These are parts that would have been exported primarily to Canada and Mexico for installation in vehicles uh, manufactured there, and a result overall of about 715,000 fewer U.S. jobs. So that leads to increases in used vehicle prices. That's the best um, substitute for a new vehicle is a used vehicle. Um, we see used vehicle prices would go up by 10% or more. Um, many of the parts that are used to maintain and repair your vehicle are um, from imported sources as well. So just holding on to the vehicle you have becomes a more expensive proposition. And of course, less consumer choice in the end because if there would be fewer models offered um, if we are restricting those vehicles that could be imported. All of those results, by the way, are uh, taken into effect before retaliation. So this is just the impact of us putting the tariffs on in the United States. Um, one of the key things is, you know, why is this not driving back all kinds of investment and new jobs to the U.S.? Um, it's partly because of where we are in the business cycle and partly because of the impact that we had in the earlier part of this century um, where uh, the traditional Detroit 3 automakers were adjusting their capacity downward to meet um, their market share. Um, there, there was a huge influx of investment in the auto industry coming out of the 2009 downturn. Um, so the, many plants have been reinvested. We've got nine new plants, um, sorry, 11 new plants in North America since, um, since 2009. And we've been meeting the peak demand. Peak demand was in 2016 with the existing capacity and footprint. So if demand's not going up anymore, which most forecasters are showing a plateau or if not a little soft decline in the U.S. market, there's not a lot of incentive for there to be new, new capacity investments. 
um, and the current capacity is over 80% utilized. Um, that was one of the keys for the steel and aluminum tariff is that the, um, the Commerce Department found that the industries were below 80% and they said 80% is a healthy utilization rate for an industry. Auto and parts are well above 80%. And in fact, if you look at it by automaker, most automakers are above 80% utilization for their assembly capacity. And only a handful are below. And that handful is VW, Tesla, um, and then a few plants that are new and coming online. So Toyota, Mazda, and Geely, Volvo in South, in South Carolina. Um, so those are the only plants below 80% utilization. Um, Another thing that the uh, automakers or that the administration may be saying, thinking is we have a 25% tariff on tr pickup trucks and cargo vehicles. And that has effectively made it such that all pickup trucks and cargo vehicles are made in North America. Um, so why doesn't the 25% tariff for trucks work for cars? Well, it doesn't um, because pickup trucks are on a different uh, vehicle architecture and they're much less flexible, and the type of pickup truck we drive in the United States is very different from that of the rest of the world. So we represent here in the US about a quarter of global truck production, about 30% of global truck sales. Uh, these are very profitable vehicles, and I'm gonna give an example from Ford, for example. They have their underlying vehicle architecture for their F-series pickup trucks. They can make four vehicles on that platform the F-150, 250, 350 Super Duties, the Expedition, and the Navigator. They make those vehicles in four plants, all in the United States, Kentucky, uh, Dearborn, Michigan, Kansas City, Missouri, and Avon Lake, Ohio. However, if you look at their small car platform, their C1 platform, that would be the Ford Focus. Uh, they make the Ford Focus, the C-Max, the Escort in China, the Escape, the Kuga, the Transit Connect, the Terneo, and the Lincoln MKC a whole host of different vehicles on that platform, and they make them in nine different plants around the world, in Kentucky, in China, in Germany, Russia, Spain, Taiwan, Thailand, Turkey, and Vietnam. Now, if you have a supply chain aligned for a vehicle that you make only in the U.S., primarily for the U.S. market, then um, that's one thing. <laughs> but to realign the supply chain for a vehicle that you sell in the U.S. as well as all across the world, and you make in nine different plants, and you make nine different vehicle variants on that, realigning that supply chain is a much more um, onerous task, and not something that would be easily adjusted um, to um, bring that capacity or bring that content back to the United States for production. So the tariff on trucks doesn't really work for the if you put it on cars. Now, eight countries constitute 92% of all U.S. auto and parts imports. And without a surprise, Mexico and Canada are number one and number two. Japan, Germany, South Korea, China, the U.K., and Italy round out the top eight. The top four, Mexico, Canada, Japan, and Germany, are 76% of all U.S. auto and parts imports. So um, what would happen if they do, in fact, put in place a tariff around 25%? Um, on imported autos and parts. In the short term, we don't see very much changing. Um, with overtime, uh, we can stretch existing capacity with a little investment, um, but roughly half of the capacity headroom um, is tied up in sedan production 
And if you've been reading the papers, not a lot of people are wanting to buy sedans these days. So there would have to be some investment to retool plants for the types of vehicles people want to buy. Um, and auto sales have already started to weaken. As I mentioned, our peak year was 2016. Our U.S. economic growth has not been tremendously robust. Usually we don't see positive automotive sales growth unless we have at least 3% GDP growth, and we haven't been near 3% on a sustained level in a number of years. In the medium term, we think that we would start to see some export producers moving production outside the U.S., and Harley-Davidson has been a um, poster child for doing that for their export um, work. They were looking to move that outside of the U.S., um, but you might see BMW, Tesla, um, even Volvo uh, move more of their export focused production outside the U.S. And we would see lower profits, um, leading to lower investment in plants, equipment, new models, and new technologies. Longer term, uh, U.S. plant investment is very risky and unlikely. Overcapacity was a huge problem in the 2000s, and automakers and suppliers are cautious to get overextended. We would see a smaller market, lower output, lower imports, lower exports, and fewer choices for consumers. And even though the total economic impact is negative, we would see um, motor vehicle manufacturing and employment increase slightly. So due to where we are in the business cycle, nine years and almost two months into this recovery, um, one of the longest recoveries we've had in history, we don't really think that there's a, a lot of room for um, automakers to expand in the U.S. Um, there are some things that can be done that, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's not that this isn't an issue, <laughs> um, that you know, having more jobs in the U.S. would be a good thing. Um, so what would we do to have more jobs in the U.S.? I think if we had provided more incentives for automotive investment in the United States, um, one of the key issues is that free trade agreements with other countries can um, actually expand our use, our, our production. So both Canada and Mexico have negotiated free trade with the rest of the world. They can reach more than half of the global market for new vehicles without tariff, whereas the U.S. can only reach 9% of the global market for new vehicles beyond our shores without tariff. So engaging more fully in the global economy um, and being uh, export-focused as well as um, supplying what is now the second largest automotive market in the world here in the United States, um, those would be... Uh, more positive approaches to increasing U.S. Uh, employment and production. Um, there are some ways to mitigate the negative impacts of these tariffs, phasing them in on a longer basis, um, putting the tariffs only on autos and not parts, uh, netting for U.S. content, which I assume they will do, um, exemptions for Canada and Mexico, um, especially if there is a positive outcome to the NAFTA renegotiation that is going on that would seem to be a good condition that they be um, removed from the 232 for steel and aluminum as well as from uh, autos and parts, um, or to focus the tariffs only on those countries where there are unfair, unfair trading policies or a rate that's less than 25%. Um, I think now to wrap up just a second and talk about where we are with NAFTA. Um, the NAFTA renegotiation has been going on for over a year now. Um, the parties, you know, there's some talk now that it's just bilateral talks between the U.S. and Mexico. U.S. and Canada had made considerable progress earlier this year while there was a Mexican presidential election going on. So Mexico has kind of um, come back to the table and, and moving their ball forward as well. 
Um, the trading partners, Canada and Mexico, are very invested in there being a tripartite or you know, a trilateral agreement. Um, even though once in a while we hear from the administration they would much prefer um, two bilateral agreements. I don't think that the trading partners are going to want to do that. And there are a number of sticking points remaining. So there's some pressure from the U.S. to have a deal done and, and moving forward through the Congress before the midterm elections. Uh, in Mexico, they've just elected a new president. He takes office in December. Um, and would like to sign this agreement fairly soon, fairly early on, um, so that it can be, um, you know, behind him and and more, you know, if there are negative effects, can be blamed on the previous president, I guess. Um, but, you know, they uh, are looking to wrap this up fairly quickly as well. Um, even once they reach an agreement, we're still about a year from the new NAFTA being implemented. Uh, the Congress has to implement all the underlying legislation. There's a whole number of you know, consultation periods that have to go on if we're following the Trade Promotion Authority. And of course, in November, we get a new Congress, and the makeup of the Congress um, could change dramatically. So we're waiting to see, um, but um, sometime in the next you know, month or so, uh, we may be close to seeing a new NAFTA uh, agreement and start to see some of the details that have been on the table. And with that, I think I'll turn it to you, uh, Jim, and we can have some questions. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, uh, last week, we did a call with the president of the Dallas Fed, and he made a point about uh, trade policy. Uh, it, it's, it's one thing to go after uh, trade relationships where we're importing a lot of finished goods, uh, and it's very different from our relationships with Mexico and Canada, where we're, we're passing back and forth intermediary goods quite a bit. Uh, and he used the auto industry as an example. So it's not just that there are our biggest trading partners, but we're, and, and it might be helpful to explain uh, to, to the listeners just how much things move back and forth across the, board, uh, the border. Well, and they change hands multiple times. So this is actually a famous um, thing for us around the office. We get asked this question a lot. How many times does the park cross the border? Um, it's hard to track. Uh, but if you think about how the auto industry builds up product, you can, you can imagine a number of uh, different scenarios. Um, and I think, I'm trying to remember if it was Peterson Institute did a, um, an, an illustration of you know, something small, electronic piece that came in um, and then gets built up into a seat, um, into a motor that's assembled, and then the, the seat motor is then moved to a factory that is closer to the assembly point, and that, you know, maybe crosses the border four or five times. Um, you know, looking at something that is a stamped metal product, maybe the, you know, the metal stamping dies are made in you know one of the three countries uh, then they're moved to another country for the actual stamping and production if the pieces need to be heat treated and then subassembled and assembled up into a larger component um, you know and then put into say an engine um, and then the engine maybe cross the border again um, if you need not do much than you know you can sit and watch the, t the trucks going across the border at the uh, ambassador bridge here in detroit um, or down in uh, the border region with Texas to see how many times it's an auto parts truck um, crossing the border. And uh, Canada, um, he's no longer the trade guy, uh, uh, but Minister Champagne uh, said, you know, we're not just trading with each other, we're building things together. And, you know, if 
that's you know an engine plant here, a transmission plant in Mexico, and the vehicles assembled in Canada and sold back here in the United States happens all the time. So uh, now we'd like to open up to your questions or comments. Uh, if you have a question, please press one to speak live on the call, or you can email your question to info at businessfwd.org. Please remember to introduce yourself with your business and where you're calling from. Uh, our, our first question is uh, from uh, Jerry Pedraza in, from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and he asks whether uh, the um, investment by automakers uh, in, the US, in the United States is slowing down because of all this uncertainty. Actually, it slowed down um, considerably before the, even the election. Um, we saw um, there are huge spikes in investment activity around UAW negotiation years. So 2015 um, was a big spike. 2011 was a big spike. We saw it start to mute um, down to you know very small numbers um, right after the 2015 negotiations. So 2016 was down low. 17 was pretty low as well. So um, you know there's. Uh, a lifespan to many of these investments. You know, if it's a reinvestment, in fact, uh, for you know paint shop or stamp body stamping uh, operation, you know those go five, ten years before they need reinvestment. So a big flurry of activity coming out of 2009. Um, we're not going to see that those investments need reinvesting again for a little while. Um, so uh, yeah, it already has petered out well before we got to this uncertain part and well before we knew who would be the president. We've got two questions from Timothy Vitiello from Altoona, Pennsylvania. Uh, the first is, um, have steel mills announced any new investments uh, here in the United States to build capacity? And uh, could you explain the difference between uh, auto, uh, tariffs on autos and auto parts? Sure. Um, some steel mills have have announced that they would be um, expanding, bringing back some uh, some uh, workers and, and expanding their production. I think you know a real critical thing, and this I know better for the auto industry, but um, we did look into it for steel as well, is the productivity gains from uh, technology as well as work organization means that we can make the same amount of steel and aluminum now with many fewer workers than we did say 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and even you know, just in the auto industry, uh, if I go back to 2005, we had uh, 853,222 workers. Um, we're down in 2016, about 15% lower, but production is up uh, 3%. So if you look at the vehicles per worker, uh, it's about um, 13.6 in 2005, and it's up to 16.5 in 2016. So much more productive, so fewer, lower employment, um, getting the same amount of output both in auto as, as well as steel and aluminum production. So uh, this protection taking place now at this period of time is is having a lower impact on unemployment than it would have you know 10 or 15 years ago. Um, the difference between uh, tariff on autos or parts. I'm not exactly sure what the question is, but um, you know, the autos, just about every auto uh, that's sold in the United States uh, that comes from the North American region has U.S. content. So they would likely have to net out the U.S. content for the tariff purposes. 
um, and just about every import to the U.S. from offshore, um, from Europe, from Asia, um, has very, very, very low, less than 5% U.S. content. So it's those um, vehicles from further afield uh, that would have uh, greater tariff impacts. And when you look at the sources of our imports, um, the, the U.S. market last year was uh, 17 uh, 2 uh, million units. 52% uh, of that was U.S. sales of U.S. produced vehicles. Um, and about one in four vehicles sold in the U.S. was made by an international automaker here in the U.S. But 48% were imported. Um, about half of that uh, of our imports come from Canada and Mexico. Our next largest importer is Japan, uh, that supplies 10% of U.S. sales. South Korea, about 5%. Germany, 3%. And all other countries, China and Italy and France and England um, and Turkey and a whole bunch of other, uh, Romania, Poland, everything is uh, less than 5%. So when you're looking at those offshore sources, Mexico, Canada, are half of our imports, then Japan at 10%, South Korea and Germany. Um, you know, we have a free trade agreement in place with South Korea. Um, so um, they're, they've been considered friendly for a long time. Uh, Japan and Germany have been considered friendly since after World War II. Um, there are no real national security threat countries <laughs> um, in the vast majority of the U.S. vehicle imports to the U.S. I've got a question from Russ Monk. Um, uh, if the word tariff is framed as a tax, which it is, why won't Congress push back? The incoming country pays the tax slash tariff. That's true. Consumers will pay that tariff, or the um, automakers and suppliers will have to absorb the increased cost themselves and, and not pass it along to consumers. Um, it is a tax. There was a piece on um, last week tonight with John Oliver <laughs> this weekend uh, that uh, actually did a really good job of explaining how tariffs are taxes on the population that imposes the tariff. It does impact production back in the countries that are imported to, to the U.S. as the price of their goods increases in the U.S. that we'll buy less and there will be um, obviously uh, employment and output implications for those other countries, but they're not paying a higher tariff. We are here and it's, it's a tax on our own consumers. Uh, we have a live question from Toby Malachi. Toby, uh, you're on the line. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jim. Uh, uh, Kristen, outstanding presentation. I'm Dr. Toby Malachi, President and Founding Chief Executive Officer of Malachi Group Worldwide here in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, Kristen, I'm also the Vice Chairman of the Indiana District Export Council, which is part of the U.S. Foreign Commercial Service, U.S. Department yep. of Commerce. Um, I am uh, also, uh, more importantly, a former General Motors Corporation executive with Chevrolet Motor Division. Uh, my, my district I was over was uh, Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana. And there's a rumor that's going around now, if you can maybe, you might know that Gary, Indiana, has a lot of steel mills. They've just raised about $750 million to get those steel mills up and running again in combating uh, 232. Uh, I worked on NAFTA um, when I was on the board of U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I know the President of Mexico is trying to get this deal done. Do you have an update on, on the Ford plant? Ford has a huge operation in Mexico. I know there was some talk of them coming back into the U.S., but since then, Mexico is a major player. Ford does have that 
uh, F-150, as you mentioned, part of that global 30% uh, of sales. Is there, is there a movement now to, to get the automotive makers to come together in a collective effort to address their concerns as a, as a body uh, with the president in terms of the weakening auto sales and the U.S. becoming saturated, not much room just to, uh, to expand? Well, actually, it's it's been um, rather incredible to see how um, how united the autos um, suppliers and other associations in D.C. have been. They've um, just this week um, come out with a letter, uh, a joint letter across the associations. Um, you know, there are three main auto automaker associations, and then um, several others uh, for parts and dealers and um, other constituencies within the automotive industry. But the three main ones for automakers are the Alliance of Automotive Manufacturers. Um, they mm -hmm. have both international producers as well as uh, domestic firms as their membership. Um, there is Global Automakers, and that is, uh, as the name says, Global Automakers, but some of them are um, importers only, not producing in the U.S., but um, many of them do produce here. And then there's the AAPC, the, Ameri the Alliance of American uh, uh, American Automobile <laughs> Policy Council, sorry, um, and that is just the Detroit Three, Ford, GM, and Fiat Chrysler. Um, they were really formed to have their different interests largely about trade issues. So the AAPC members, the Detroit Three, would have different trade interests maybe than the international producers, and you know the alliance has been largely quiet on trade issues for a long time. Um, Global will take on trade issues from their perspective. AAPC will take on trade issues from their perspective. But in this case, they're all uniformly behind one message that this is not what they want. <laughs> Um, the parts or, or organizations, the um, Motor and Equipment Manufacturers Association, um, which is part of OESA, the Original Equipment Suppliers Association, they're all united um, for the first time I've ever seen in my life. And I don't know, Jim, you've been around D.C. and seen these organizations. Have you ever seen them all on one page? <laughs> um, it's it's pretty um, incredible. Um, you mentioned the Ford plant in Mexico. Ford has actually got um, of the Detroit three um, sort of the lowest exposure in Mexico. Um, both uh, well, G Ford, GM, and Chrysler all have production in Mexico. And in fact, of that 48% of vehicle sales that are imported, um, Ford, GM, and FCA represent half of the Canadian and Mexican imports. So those are captive imports of those companies coming in from Canada and Mexico. Uh, it's not a new thing. It didn't happen with NAFTA. Ford has been continually producing in Mexico since 1925. Um, and, you know, they did, Ford did pull back from having a factory. They were going to build a new small car factory in Mexico. They decided not to um, and said instead they would um, supply that vehicle from China. Um, I think those plans uh, went by the wayside when Ford made their announcement that they were pulling back out of sedans altogether. Um, but, you know, Many people thought, well, it wasn't going to be in the United States. It was in Mexico. It's in China. We're indifferent. Um, but there were jobs in the U.S. tied to production in Mexico. There were 200 jobs at a transmission plant in Michigan that would have been making transmissions to send to that plant in Mexico that were not going to be making transmissions to send it to the plant in China. So those kinds of decisions about is it near shore or far, far shore matter a lot to U.S. jobs. 
We much prefer to have the jobs in the U.S. If we can't have them in the U.S., Canada and Mexico are second best. And then those far offshore have very, very low U.S. content. Uh, we've got a written question from Indira Klein. Um, question is, given the status quo with regard to tariffs, what are your thoughts on how planned interest rate hikes uh, in 2018 and early 2019 may impact the industry, especially when considering the supply chain? Well, interest rates affect the auto industry in a number of ways. Um, the thing most folks think about is the is the consumer and the rate that they're going to pay at buying a new vehicle. Um, and that uh, certainly is, is an impact, but suppliers are um, often buy, borrowing money in order to fund their their work. Um, you know, they don't get paid until they deliver the product, um, but they get a contract and they've got to buy supplies and and inputs and make some investments. So the supplier base has a has a, a financing uh, relationship where those interest rates matter a lot. So an increase in interest rates um, are going to dram dramatically impact our supply chain um, as well as the consumer side. And I want to point out too that. Um, even completely unrelated tariff work, um, so well, it's not completely unrelated, but um, we have Section 301 tariffs that we've placed on China, and that um, the Chinese tariffs have escalated to cover broadly almost everything that we import from China uh, will be under tariff and if, by the end of this year. Um, but then China will retaliate as well on products uh, that we send there, and you know the famous one is soybeans and sorghum and agricultural products. But that means the soybean farmers and the sorghum farmers and the other folks who are impacted by those trade am trade actions are not going to buy a new Ford F-150. <laughs> you know that will impact right. their consumption of automotive uh, goods and other goods, and you know spiral the economy downward as well. Um, so it's it's all a system <laughs> and the right. uh the globalization of the economy has you know uh, accelerated in in great uh strides and it's really very difficult to just you know wall ourselves off and say we're not going to participate in this we're going to be an island the rest of the world will go on without us um and if we want to have uh that leadership in the world we want to be um an export base um we want to have technological leadership then we have to remain engaged in the global economy. We have a live question from Max Trujillo. Uh, Max, your li uh, line is live. I understand your explanation, and it makes perfect sense that our car industry with the Canadians and the Mexicans are more or less interlinked now, and it's not just a trade issue. It's just that we actually partner in terms of the development of the, of the units themselves. The conversation of having bilateral agreements into round counter to that effort in terms of the NAFTA negotiations. I forgot if it was in the third round or in the fifth round where the Canadians um, proposed to count some of the software components as part of the car being made in the U.S. So the U.S. will have a more flexible position. Uh, that was dismissed right off the bat. Has there been any other new initiatives to try to placate the demand of, about the North American cars have more than 50% made in with U.S. parts. And has there been any resurfacing of the idea of using software components as part of the car parts? Thanks. 
Um, well, I recall that proposal. I don't know where it stands currently, um, whether that is still a live uh, issue on the, on the table. Um, the U.S. proposal for NAFTA included um, three main areas of, con of content. Um, the current NAFTA that's in place has a, a rule of origin that is traced to a list of um, product codes for trade, and those products that are on that list are counted, um, and there has the highest rule of origin of any trade agreement we have with any other country, 62.5% uh, North American content in order to trade within the NAFTA region um, as uh, without tariff. Now, right now, only uh, about 80% of our parts trade within NAFTA is trading using the NAFTA preference. 20% eschews the, the preference for whatever reason. It may be that they don't reach the threshold of 62.5. It may be that the documentation or the process of documenting the content is too onerous for a small supplier. Um, but for whatever reason, already we have about 20% of our parts trade is not using the NAFTA preference. Um, so the new uh, proposal from the U.S. this uh, spring was we'll have a rule of origin for parts, um, and there were core parts and non-core parts and all kinds of categories of parts. Um, then there was uh, a separate one for steel and aluminum content and how much of that had to be originating within the NAFTA region, and then one for labor value. And that, I call it the Lake Wobegon rule, <laughs> was that a certain percentage of the vehicle um, or parts uh, production had to take place in a country where the wage was above the North American average. And as we know, not everyone can be above average, so this is essentially a U.S. and Canada content rule. Um, can, Mexico seems to, or you know, the reporting is that Mexico has a, found a way to agree to that labor value content rule. Um, and that maybe the percentage has come down a little bit from where it was initially when, when the U.S. proposed it. Um, but the big thing that's uh, hanging over right now, um, two, two issues, is how uh, long it will take to phase in the new NAFTA content rules, and two, whether there will be a sunset clause. Um, the U.S. has been pushing for a five-year sunset clause where the agreement would terminate automatically um, if there was not a, a reaffirmation of the agreement. Now, this is certainly very chilling on investment um, because if the rules of the game are going to change every five years, um, you know, you're, you're going to be more cautious about investment. And so both Canada and Mexico have been pushing very hard against the sunset clause, but the, the U.S. representatives are, are holding tight to that as, as, as I understand it. So that's where we stand uh, with NAFTA right now and where the content rules are. But I don't know the exact um, percentages that, there's, that they've agreed to at this point. Thank you very much, uh, Chris. I think that's all the time we have for questions. Um, I would like to let everyone on the call know that the Business Board has been producing a steel uh, index uh, since the, the, uh, May, where we've tracked uh, trends in U.S. prices and prices that our competitors are paying for hot and cold rolled steel. Um, what we've discovered with the index is uh, uh, that uh, not only are our prices rising, but our competitors' prices are dropping because surplus steel is being is going to their markets. So uh, factories in Spain and Italy and Germany, among other countries, are seeing lower prices for steel at the same time that our factories are seeing higher price. Uh, uh, if you average hot and cold rolled steel, it's about a 25% uh, price disadvantage. Um, also, what we've uh, uh, to, to make uh, to expand on the point that Kristen made about uh, 
you know, up to a $500 uh, per car uh, impact from the steel uh, and aluminum uh, tariffs. Uh, a typical profit margin on a sedan is anywhere from $800 to $2,000, um, uh, depending on the model and, uh, and the company making it. Uh, so a $500 uh, increase on, on costs can have a huge impact on the automaker's profits. Uh, so, uh, Kristen, is there anything else? Well, that, uh, the only other thing I wanted you, that you just hit me with um, is, uh, so we're having this ongoing trade dispute with with China on the on the 301 tariffs and going back and forth. China, um, their import uh, tariff for vehicles was 25%. Um, they announced they would lower that to 15%. And then right after, we put our tariffs on their imported goods to the U.S., and they assessed an additional 25% on U.S. imports to or U.S. exports to China. So the rest of the world is now facing a 15% tariff on import on exports to China. U.S. exports to China face 40% um, in retaliation for the work, the tariff action we've done under 301. Um, we export about a quarter million vehicles a year to China right now. Most of our automakers are producing in China for the Chinese market. Um, but automakers, again, like Ford, um, you know, the vehicles that they sell there are largely Mustangs, Escalades, you know, big SUVs and luxury vehicles, Corvettes, things like that. Um, they've decided that they would not pass on an increased price to, con to Chinese consumers for that additional 25% assessment. Um, so we have a 40% assessment going into the Chinese market. The rest of the world has 15. That's a disadvantage for us. Tariffs don't work. Um, Kristen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, and uh, if you have qu uh, questions that uh, we didn't get to, uh, please uh, just uh, email them to us at info at businessfwd, and we'll do our best to uh, answer them. Uh, please check your email for. <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, please, uh, uh, for those of you on the call, please check your email for a post-event survey where you can let us know what you thought of today's call. And Kristen, thank you again. We really appreciate it. And uh, uh, it looks like we'll be having a lot to talk about over the next uh, few quarters, so we hope to have you back. Great. Thanks so much, Jim.